excited to have Tom Shannon and George Barrios with us today. Um, as I think most of you know, Bolero is going public through a merger with ISOS, which is the SPAC that um, George Barrios and Michelle Wilson, both former presidents of WWE run. And um, I think maybe we should just like get started with George. Um, you raised this SPAC and you saw many, many opportunities, um, as we've discussed, and you landed on Bolero. What was it about Bolero that that really piqued your interest and, and made you want to make yeah, that your well, I, I don't want to steal Tom's thunder, um, but I will say, to your point, uh, Michelle and I were you know, kind of humbled at the outreach we got, the inbounds we got once the uh, SPAC was announced. Obviously, a lot of former WWE investors actually were in the SPAC as well. But, you know, for Bobolero's short thing, three things we were looking at every opportunity and kind of ranking on. One was market, second was business model, and third was growth opportunity. And what we loved about Bolero, it's a large global market that's growing, and it's the largest participatory sport in the United States, bowling is. The second thing is the business model. These guys, we, you know us from WWE, we're big believers in a secular tr macro trend around experiential entertainment because of Gen Z and millennials and their appetite for that. These guys have built a premium branded experience and you see it in the numbers. Their organic revenue growth is you know, 5% in the four years pre-COVID. The business model, I still remember the day, the breakfast uh, at where Tom lives, where, uh, he was explaining the business model, and he says very clearly, 100% variable margins on every incremental game of bowling, right? So incredible, and 1.5% of revenue on maintenance capex. So the business model is great. What they've built is great. The inherent business model is great. And they've done it through acquisition, and it gets to the growth in a second. So they have the people, process, and tools on how to um, acquire and improve. And then the third element was the growth. And this fragmented market where they're the largest cons uh, and natural consolidator, the fact that it's a global opportunity and that they have the beginnings of this great media, gaming, and sports betting model, which fits right into you know what Michelle and I have done, we loved it. So that that was the short answer. Great market, great business, huge growth opportunity. Awesome. And maybe we'll just flip it um, around and ask Tom, why did you choose George and Michelle? It's simple. The breakfast he alluded to, uh, they took me to IHOP. And, uh, <laughs> the, the fresh yeah, it sounds, to Actually, it, it sounds right about right for George. I mean. Oh, yeah. The mm. Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity, I think it was three ninety nine. He said we had to go at, at 4.30 p.m. because there was a special. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he sold me. Uh, why George and Michelle? I mean, candidly, uh, they have the most relevant experience set to take us global uh, to help us accelerate our media, gambling, and gamification efforts. So uh, it's rare, frankly, when a financial sponsor really is value added. Um, we, we've met with a lot of people. We've had partners, et cetera. Uh, but these guys actually could be value added. And, and we're excited about that. So um, chemistry is good. We like them. Uh, they get it, which is really key. You know, bowling is less sort of obvious than most people think. People think, oh, bowling, how complicated can that be? Well, 
we've made it, we've made the business model pretty complicated. I mean, the industry average EBITDA margin is 20%. Ours is 50%, right? And that, that doesn't just happen. There's really Sounds like you're making it easy, not complicated. <laughs> um, it's, it's easy now, but there's yeah. a lot of, yeah. <laughs> making mean, yeah, it, but, yeah. But there was a oh, lot no, of wait. process and intellectual capital that got us there. And, right. and George and Michelle got that. They got the nuances of the story. And that was that was important. I want to get into the backstory of sort of who you are and where this all came from in terms of um, what you're trying to do. But before we even get there, I think maybe to just frame this industry, it's highly fragmented. It's been around a long time. There's lots of private equity. Capital has been around for decades. Like, why has nobody done this? This sort of seems like an, uh, you know, George is nodding his head. Maybe both of you have an answer here, but like, it sort of seems obvious that this shouldn't still be a mom and pop industry the way it really is. Why are we talking about this in 2021 and not 10 or 20 years ago? Well, actually, 20 years ago or back in 96, Goldman bought AMF from some private investors. I'll go back. In 86, um, some, some private investors in Richmond, Virginia bought AMF Bowling from the AMF conglomerate which had been taken over in a hostile raid and was being disassembled. They took it, they made, uh, you know, they took it, they improved it, they sold it to Goldman, they made $2 billion in 10 years. No one remembers this part of the deal. So then Goldman buys it and they go crazy with acquisitions. And in two years, they go from like 260 locations to 620 locations worldwide. Margins start to come down. No one can manage this level of growth. So they saw the consolidation opportunity, but they just went crazy. They bought indiscriminately. They bought low quality assets. In some cases, they paid high multiples. Still, they would have survived, except that what happened is the global currency crisis came, the Asian crisis, I should say, and their products business went from 90 million of EBITDA to 10 million of EBITDA overnight. That led to the first bankruptcy. So then AMF gets taken out of bankruptcy by a private equity firm in uh, Chicago that really didn't have any understanding of the business. And when we met with them early on, we tried to get involved. This was back in, I think, 20, um, when was it? Uh, I, I don't know, a decade before 2012. So, you know, 2002. And um, they basically harvested the business. Uh, the CEO tried to leave and they made him stick around. He was there for five years. The, co- the company was basically rudderless. Uh, and then it went bankrupt again. We acquired it out of bankruptcy. So I think that the institutional history of bowling is kind of negative because but it, it almost seems like a comedy of errors in many ways. Historically, bad management. I'll tell you, like the overarching example of bad management. Bowling alleys are all different because the communities they're in are all different. You can be in a, uh, you can have a monopoly in an affluent community, or you can be one of a number of bowling centers in a rural area. And the dy- the pricing and profitability dynamics are completely different. We have centers that do less than a million dollars a year. We have centers that do more than $16 million a year. So you think about that spread. It's massive. And so the customer composition, pricing, all of those aspects are completely different. 
the guys who came in who were hired from the outside under Goldman's ownership or others' ownership took a one-size-fits-all approach, a cookie-cutter approach. They came out of like Arby's or Pepsi, and they said, we're going to standardize everything. All the prices will be the same. doesn't work. We have 20 tiers of pricing. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But you have, you know, you go from Hickory, North Carolina to Chelsea Piers in Manhattan. And the pricing model is completely different. And the customer composition is completely different. Rural centers are league heavy. Urban centers are event heavy. So we got that from the start. I mean, we we created upscale bowling in America, right? And, and so we knew going in, you treat these centers all to the extent required as individual centers. You understand the market dynamic and you go from there. No one else took the time to do that. And maybe just um, on, on you, like the backstory of like, why is Tom Shannon the right person to do this? You know, what you woke up one morning and you were like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fix the bowling industry's challenges and this sort of comedy of errors that I was sort of that you were sort of walking us through. Like, why are you and your team the right people to do this? Well, we've done it. I mean, it's like it's it's we're almost a billion dollars and 330 centers. So it's not on the come. It's actually in the rearview mirror. But but to answer your question. Um, I got out of business. But you woke school. up one day, right? You got you woke up one day and you were like, I'm gonna do this. I want to hear that story. Yeah, what yeah, Bullmore. Take us all the way back to Bullmore. Okay. I got out of business school in 92. And I got a job in a can factory in rural in outside of Philadelphia for forty five thousand dollars a year. And everything in this can factory was painted yellow because some industrial psychologist said it was the color to cause you to be least likely to kill your coworkers. Okay. Whoa. (laughs) It was a terrible job and the pay was bad also. So after 10 months of sort of re-engineering processes in this big high volume factory, I said, I got to do something entrepreneurial. So I moved to New York and I started doing odd jobs and I got invited on a date to a birthday party at a bowling alley. And I walk into this bowling alley on University Place in Greenwich Village. And it was really big, pretty busy and really run down. And it smelled bad too. And I started looking around and I had remembered in business school, we had cases on the guys who had bought AMF. They were actually alumni of my business school, University of Virginia. So I had, there were five cases in the class on the acquisition and turnaround of AMF. They hadn't sold it to Goldman yet. So I walked in, I started looking around and I'm thinking, I'm calculating how every ball thrown is this much revenue, right? Times this many lanes. And I'm I'm calculating revenue potential and and on and on. And so I reach out to the owners three days later and I said, like to buy the bowling alley. And they said, what do you want to do with the bowling alley? I said, what do you mean? They said, well, do you want to turn it into a pool hall? I said, no, no. They said, do you want to turn into a gym? I said, no, I want to keep it a bowling alley. And they looked at each other and they go, like, bowling? Like they had given it up for dead. Okay. So I buy this thing with 3,000 down and 2 million borrowed. Most of that at 17.5% interest because a lender of last resort lent me the money. And I take it from a million dollars a year in revenue to $15 million in revenue, one location. Highest grossing bowling alley in the world from 99 
to 2010 when we opened our new flagship in Times Square. Reinvented the paradigm, right? So we renovated, we started focusing heavily on the retail walk-in guests, corporate parties, and special events. We're doing all the top firms, I mean, all the investment banks. It was weird because you would have multiple groups, like Goldman would have two or three events going on simultaneously. Oh, I remember going there for events, so. (laughs) I mean, we've, we've been to plenty. We, we've been to plenty of holiday parties at your properties. <laughs> All right, so you get it, you know. And what was astonishing to me is, the more we did, the more demand came in. It was like we would renovate, and demand would come in. We would raise price. We'd get more demand. We'd refine the menus. We get more demand. At one point, we were the highest non-national advertiser in New York Magazine. Right, we were the the largest advertiser on a dollar basis of any non-national brand. So we're marketing heavily, and really just focused on the service proposition and all of the nuances that go into booking those events. When do you book them? How do you price them? How do you price the extension? What should the menus do? As I alluded to earlier, we've invested a lot of intellectual capital into this business, right? And so you take a finite thing, forty-two lanes of bowling and you go from a million to 15 million, obviously there's a lot of process refinement. We took that and that became the blueprint for the company. And so to a great, you know, largely all of the centers operate on that same DNA, right? But the customer concentrations and mix changes, as I mentioned, from leagues to events and retail, right? In some combination. We just seek to optimize that mix at every place. And you do that with pricing, you know, we're cheaper at off peak times, right? We're more expensive on the weekends at night. We're more expensive yeah. in December, all of that. So you you mentioned earlier that when private equity tried to roll up um, this industry, they took kind of a one size fits all approach, which, you know, can you can you talk about what what's your secret sauce? What's behind your approach? Is there um, software involved in this? How do you know the right way to approach each separate property that you buy or build? Uh, it's a combination of art and science. So the art part is we have regional vice presidents and district managers that have a lot of tenure and a lot of. Uh, local market knowledge, right? We also have a corporate culture that um, it's an ownership culture, an actual ownership culture. So a lot of a lot of our senior managers, well, all of our senior managers and many of our general managers have a phantom equity stake in the company. Um, and they've been rewarded. We did a deal in 2017 where a Taros came in and replaced previous hedge funds who were our partner resulting from the AMF acquisition and 140 people in management benefited from that transaction. You know, some of which, some very materially life-changing for many of my guys. Um, so there's an actual psychic ownership. People own their P&Ls. People are very focused on performance. And then we built a system to manage all this, which we call Bellum, for short for Cerebellum. And what it does is it benchmarks every center against its revenue peers in about 20 different categories, some revenue, some expense. And it shows you what optimal performance is and optimal margin. 
And what's really funny is if you go into any of our centers and you ask the general manager, what's your EBITDA margin? They'll tell you. They compete on that basis. People will call me. I see them. Oh, you know, we did a 56% EBITDA margin last quarter. It's amazing. It's amazing because when we interview people to be managers, we say, what were, you, what were you doing in revenue at your last job, restaurant, whatever it was? Most don't even know. Most companies don't share data, even with their employees, even with employees that have P&L responsibility. How bizarre is that? They don't even know their revenue. No, they don't even know what EBITDA is, much less EBITDA. EBITDA, right? EBITDA, add back rent. The reason we look at EBITDA is because we own a lot of our centers, right? So we're just normalizing for the controllable operating profit. What can they actually generate without this artificial overlay of rent? So our people are very well informed. We, we create a lot of financial literacy deep down into the organization, and they're rewarded on that. And so you have this ownership culture um, sitting on top of this bellum, which is enormously powerful. When we bought Brunswick in 2014, we bought 85 bowling centers from Brunswick Corporation and a corporate carve-out for $270 million. We were immediately able to identify the opportunities based on the AMF data set. And in 15 months, we took EBITDA of those Brunswick centers from $32 million to $50 million, right? When we do acquisitions, I mentioned industry average EBITDA margins, 20%, ours is 50%. 20, yeah. 20 of those 30 points come solely from process improvement. No capital investment required. The last 10 will come from cosmetic improvements, amenity improvements, whatever. So, I mean, that really is the secret sauce. Whenever we look at an acquisition, we run it through Bellum, and Bellum tells us exactly where it should be, where it should optimize in terms of margin. And, um, and we always get there because it's, at the end of the day, this is just a math exercise. Right. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, or not a little bit, specifically at what multiples you're buying these, um, these bowling alleys for and what the effective multiple becomes after you put your secret sauce into it and optimize the margins? And maybe related, when you do this optimization, are you optimizing the revenue side, the cost side, or both? How does it all come together? Okay. So when we're buying a center that's leased, typically we're paying five to seven times trailing and a center with the real estate. Trailing EBITDA or EBITDA? Uh, EBITDA. Okay. Okay. And uh, a center with real estate, about eight to 10 times trailing EBITDA, which is the same in this case as EBITDA. And yep. then on, a, on a forward basis, less than half, right? Because margin goes from 20 to 50. So it's a more than doubling of profit. Uh, and so the, the forward multiples are, you know, typically three to five. So Alana's got a follow-up question to that. When you look at sort of the growth story um, or your growth strategy that you sort of have laid out, how much of it is dependent on roll-ups? How many, is that, is it all about what you just described or is there insignificant opportunities on the organic growth side as well, I guess is the other part of that, that I would add. Well, we grew same store sales by 5% over the seven years pre-COVID. 
it's accelerated since then. Our numbers are much better now. Uh, I think we have a lot of pricing opportunities, which will further accelerate the organic growth. We also have 182 centers that we haven't renovated from the traditional, which is the AMF brand, to the experiential, which would be the Bullmore or Bolero brands. Eventually, we're just going to fold Bullmore into Bolero. So we'll have Bolero and AMF. So out of those 182, probably 90 are good candidates for conversion. And those get a much higher revenue and EBITDA levels. So huge organic opportunity. And in addition to acquisitions, we're also building new. In fact, last night, we just opened another center in Oxnard, California. Uh, tomorrow night, we're opening in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. And we opened four more in the last year. So lots of avenues of growth. And why even bother? Tom, why don't you tell these guys what your kind of five years uh, North America center count plan is? I think that's... Yeah, and how many you could add in a year and still manage it? Uh, well, I think the market potential in North America is six to 700 centers. And look, when we bought AMF in 2013, I had 300 associates and six centers. Overnight, we had 272 locations and 9,500 associates. And this was taking a company that had been harvested for a decade. So everything was wrong with this company. Everything was bad at AMF and we fixed it. So I don't think there's any constraint. I think we could do a multi-billion dollar acquisition and we can handle it. I mean, we've done, and we've done uh, two large scale acquisitions and a lot of other acquisitions uh, and, and not missed a beat. So I don't think that the, the people part uh, is a limiting factor. And I think there are a lot of acquisition opportunities in leisure and hospitality generally that are contiguous enough that they're viable at least to look at, like Top Golf, for example. I'm not right. sure Callaway should own Top Golf, right? They wanted it for the brand. It's, yeah, it's not an experienced company. It's not their DNA. Right. They're a manufacturer. That's right. Right. So why are they managing driving ranges? <laughs> they, they shouldn't be. If they want to have Callaway clubs and that's fine we can work that out we'll be happy to make that deal right but but just bowling centers themselves forget about any other opportunities how many per year do you believe that you're going to add to your portfolio oh we've projected a certain amount i can't remember what that is but i think we're going to do meaningfully better than that Something like 30 a year, though. Yeah, we could easily do 30 a year between acquisitions and new builds, sure. But, but can I just jump in? I guess one of the things I don't fully understand that I'd love sort of you to dig into, if the economics of buying established places is so good and you can flip them from 25 to 50% margins, why are you building new centers? That seems like a lot of work and a lot of effort, digging ground. And like, why not just buy all like why are we you know is it what's the rationale for building at all when you can buy so in such a compelling way and it still seems to george's earlier comment like it's still such a fragmented industry like why add to the overall base of of, of centers because the average center we're acquiring is sub three million in revenue because you know the industry average is about a million we're north of two and a half but uh, you know, the, the average center we're acquiring is sub three and the average center we're building is doing about 6 million 
at opening. So it's a much higher revenue, higher margin, higher bottom line experiment. And you get- um, and, and that's because of where you're building, not so much where you're I mean, your, your point is you're building in places where you believe you can get a revenue number that is far better than any cost energies you can get out of buying. Absolutely. We're building only in A locations. So, so maybe give us an example of recent builds. And like, I would assume there was just, for some reason, this was just a great spot that just had no bowling center. Sort of curious, like why, given sort of what you're pointing out, it seems like odd that there wouldn't have been one there over the last 20 years if it was such a great location. Okay. Uh, Crystal City, Virginia, right? Arlington, Virginia, near Reagan Airport. Um, there's no bowling alley in Arlington County. I went. I graduated from high school in Arlington County. It's like a million five people, I think. Average household income, well over 100,000 people, right? Lots of families, great demographic. No bowling alley. We built one. First year, it does $6 million. Um, we build in Atlantic Station in Atlanta, a really amazing sort of lifestyle development, retail, et cetera, basically downtown, adjacent to I-85, I-75. Opens up more well in excess of $5 million, you know, EBITDA margin in the mid to high 50s. Um, where else? Dania Beach, Florida, just south of Fort Lauderdale International Airport. Lifestyle Mall. We open up there even during COVID. It's one of our highest grossing um, with with heavy restrictions, right? It's done. I think it's in the four to five million dollar range uh, in the first year. I underwrote that deal. It had to do three and a half million to make sense. It's doing closer to five million dollars at a close to 60% EBITDA margin. So these are amazing locations. They don't exist in the acquisition world, right? The actual acquisitions are good and the returns are very high, but they're not these big ones. The last two I mentioned, we opened last night in Oxnard, California, um, up in, I think it's Ventura County. Again, 250,000 people in the market. One rundown, crappy independent. It's basically on life support. We own the market. Tyson's Corner, Virginia, the fifth largest, believe it or not, the fifth largest office market in the country, right? Average household income is approaching $150,000 a year. We build in the Tyson's 2, the Galleria there. Uh, you know, one of the nicest malls in the country. Uh, oh, and, and then the other one, uh, one, one absolutely phenomenal. In uh, Westfield, Santa Anita, in Arcadia, California, we built there like 1.6 million square feet of GLA, uh, revenue per square foot in the mall, $800. I mean, one of the five best malls in the country, we open adjacent to the food court, first year, $6 million, EBITDA margin, 55%. So, yeah, there's- And this is, this is all domestic, right, that, yeah. that you're talking about. Is there an international opportunity at hand? I think you have some properties in Mexico, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we have about seven in Mexico. We have two in Canada. And I think both of those markets are ripe for further development. But the U.S. market- is massive and really underserved. So there's 3,500 independent bowling centers in the US, mom and pops. The average age of these proprietors is in their 70s, right? They are at the natural point in their lives where they're net sellers. Now, not all 3,500 are viable acquisition opportunities for us, maybe 1,500 are, and then you could build another 
100 or 200 on top of that. So we do any deal, whether it's an acquisition or new build that exceeds our hurdle rate, right? We're not, it's not one or the other, it's all of them and they're all virtuous. I will say having this conversation with Tom when he talks about the future center growth, the mix between acquire, build and convert, when you look at the acquire and build, I think Tom has said, hey, probably 80% is acquisition, maybe the other 20% is the build. So it definitely leans that way, but as Tom mentioned, they're all such high cash on cash return projects. Um, it's do as much as you can, as fast as you can. One of the, inter go ahead, Rich. No, 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 no. I, I was just thinking like when you start talking about international, um, are there players that have tried to do something similar overseas? Like, are there, is there a Bolero anywhere else in the world? Uh, no one has done this at scale. Um, so that opportunity is, is wide open. There are markets that are, are profoundly interested in bowling that you wouldn't expect like South. Yeah, Korea. Give us the list. Give us the list. Okay. South Korea. 1,200 bowling centers, 3 million league bowlers. Um, now we just have to figure out the squid game and bowling overlap. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> if you Sorry. don't pull a strike, you... <laughs> I, I, I was thinking that exact thing. You're eliminated. Like, that's that's the that's season two right there. That's what you're pitching. Terrible. Sorry. Bowling is big in... Uh, Australia bowling is big in Europe. There's two big chains in uh, England, both of which came on the market in the last 10 years. We looked at one. We probably would have done that deal, except we were buying Brunswick at the time. We didn't have the wherewithal to do two. Uh, and, you know, bowling is big in Germany and Poland and parts of Eastern Europe. I think there are markets in Southeast Asia beyond Korea that could be very interesting and attractive. And these are probably deals that we do as JVs or licensing deals. I don't think we'd commit a lot of capital, certainly not outside of Western Europe. I don't think we have to. But, you know, I think, look, there's there's a lot of blue sky there. The, the more um, actionable and immediate opportunity is domestically. And so right now we have about 30 deals in our pipeline. These are very high quality deals. You know, all the deals that I've mentioned to you are, are not, they're not uh, unusual. They're representative. For example, I'll give you another, one other acquisition. There was a bowling center in Boca Raton, the only bowling center in Boca market, captive market of about 250,000 people, a lot of affluence, lease expires on the, on the former pr proprietor. We sign a new long-term lease. We renovate. The thing opens up doing over $7 million a year. A 64-laner in the heart of Boca, if you know Boca, at the intersection basically of Glades and 95. Okay? So, man. The market is wide open and has never been this actionable. I've been doing this for almost 25 years. January 29th will be 25 years. We're seeing more deal flow now and higher quality deal flow than I've ever seen in a quarter century. Can you, you mentioned earlier that, and maybe this ties to, to the deal flow, but you mentioned earlier that things have really accelerated out of COVID, even I think off of, 2019, like sort of that organic growth in your bullion. Can you tell us like kind of what the organic growth is versus 2019 that you're seeing right now um, and and why things are going so well? And then maybe if you if you could tie to the activity that you're seeing, whether you think some of that was COVID related. 
Well, it, it's we've gone from being up mid single digits to being up, you know, low to mid double digits. So uh, a doubling or tripling of our organic growth rate. Um, you know, bowling is very familiar. Everyone knows where the bowling alley is in their neighborhood or in their hometown. It's accessible. It's affordable, right? It's 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 familiar. So um, people don't want to travel much. You know, um, bowling alleys are wide open. You know, they're you're not on top of each other. They're kind of ideal. Um, and so we were shocked when we would reopen. Massive surge of customers. And we've taken a lot of price, by the way, right? Because we have higher input costs. Although the beauty of bowling is that about two thirds of our revenue has zero cost of goods sold. There's no cogs for a game of bowling or, or shoe rental. And that's how right. we end up with 50% EBITDA it's, margin. It's, it's just food and Bev. Yeah. And food and Bev is less than a third of our revenue. And yeah, so you, uh, and uh, you took, go ahead, George. Sorry. Yeah, your question. I mean, they posted the numbers for their September quarter, which is their Q1. And July, I think, was up 21%. August was up 21%. September month to date, which was two weeks, I think, was uh, also in the low to mid 20s. So that that their Q1, to Tom's point, is looking like gangbusters relative to their last pre-COVID number. I mean, it's you know we we expected it. You know, we had a our, a thesis around kind of the reopening. Uh, frankly, their numbers have blown us away. I mean, it's it's amazing. And I've been to that Boca location. In fact, maybe when we have our two-on-two, instead of doing it in Milford, we all go to Boca because that is a amazing location. Um, you know, obviously we've got a question from um, that came in earlier. I wanted to just save it though, just to sequence it from Alana saying, "We'd love to hear more about the sports betting angle and sort of how you see betting um, sort of playing into this." Um, I don't know whether that's better for George, Tom, et cetera, but we'd love to sort of hear your perspective on, on what you're thinking. Well, I'll tell you about a couple of things that we're doing now. So uh, there is software that's been developed that we have, we have a partnership with this software company where you can link most of the scores in the world and you can have virtual tournaments. And so uh, we are now doing our second tournament called the, the global showdown. And there are, 13,000 participants in 25 countries, believe it or not, who bowl, they can enter up to 99 games in two game sets. So they can submit their wow. best, right? And um, what's happening is in the last week, 80,000 games were bowled and they pay retail prices for that. So we're creating a huge amount of interest and people are coming in, they're competing for a total pot of $50,000. The first one we did six months ago was a huge success. We had 5,000. Second one, 13,000. Eventually, I think we're going to do a lot of these simultaneously for youth bowlers, older bowlers, for you know mixed, mixed pairs, et cetera. Um, and then, and this is the most interesting thing, take that technology, you put it in the center, and I say, okay, uh, Brandon, welcome back. Right, the interface is Brandon. Welcome back. Uh, I'm going to give you this odds on your next on your first ball being a strike. How much? Do right, you want because to you have the data on me anyway, so you know you actually know what the odds are that I'm going to throw a strike. 
And even if I don't, we have three, we have the data on like 300 million games bold. So I know actuarially, even if I don't know you, I'm willing to take the risk. Okay. So as I, how much do you want to bet? One, five, $10, $20, right? You, you bowl, you throw a nine. Okay. Brandon, here are the odds I'm picking up the spare. How much do you want to bet? Right. So not only do we act as the house here, but I think that this just craves a step function higher in demand. I see you're smiling. Well, but how, how does it awesome. get enabled? Like walk us through what it would actually game of like. skill though. Right. So skill, right? legally, no, no, but, how, but how, I'm saying, how would it work in terms of actually the implementation in the alleys? Oh, well, we already have the software that, that takes the scoring data and it would either be uh, it would be on your phone as an app or mm-hmm. on a kiosk in front of you. But I get, and, you know, that point that Tom mentioned, I, 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 to me, it's overwhelming almost, right? Because you talk about sports betting, you can do the league betting, got the integrity fee, you can play the house like Tom was mentioning. But this whole thing, and, and they've done it now twice, these two tests, where they, in a three-week period, they were averaging six games per bowler. In a 52-week period, they usually get around three games bowled per uh, per visitor, right, over the over the center. In three weeks, they more than doubled that. You go back to the 100% variable margin and attach it to that level of uplift on the organic growth. I mean, to Tom's point, the organic right. it, 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 it doesn't even matter whether you make money on the betting itself. It's simply if the betting drives more engagement with the with your platform, uh, you know, the way I think about it, like that's the real win here is like you can take a very, very low VIG. It's just a matter of like just getting any and, money and it's on the more line obvious and direct like, for like, bowling like, games i mean it's like tom said it's a hundred percent margin it's like are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, everything, is more, everything is more interesting when you bet on it right yeah, yeah. of yeah. course so it's, so but, but you mentioned sort of the league then you mentioned sort of against the house it seems like the next natural one is okay i got four buddies and we're going to do a two on, you know, and we're talking one about the one. Go, yeah. We're going, we're going two on two right now. It seems very natural that that would be the one. To me, that would seem like the single greatest way to drive increased time spent. It, how easy is that to do as a next step? I mean, easy because the technology already exists. Basically, the first two things we did were beta tests for the technology, right? And, and we've gotten through it and it's successfully. And now it's just a matter of implementation. I'd like to have the gambling in center within 12 months. So we have when you say go- in center, in center in one place, five places, everywhere, what does that mean when you say in center? Uh, well, I mean, the back end already exists, right? So it's just a matter of if, for example, if we decided that the front end interface was an app, you could be in all of the centers basically in short order. So- and then I think you get a step function of increase of maybe 20% revenue because you get more frequency, you get more duration. If the average person bowls two games, give or take, on a visit, do you get them to three or do you get them to 2.4? And then do they come back more and do you get market share? You get all of that, right? It'd be proprietary to us. No one else in the industry has it. No one else in the industry ever will have it. So. You know, amazing. Amazing. Cool. It is. And yeah. again, 100%. It, it, it's interesting because 
every you talk, you know, to the NBA, you talk to MLB, uh, all the, you know, sort of big four. And you ask about, oh, what's going to be the impact of sports betting? And they're like engagement, engagement, engagement. But it's sort of this, you know, it, you can't really tie it back to you don't different. you don't know the impact. But here it's straight on participation. This right. is the only place in the world where you bring together the professional element of a sport with the participatory element, right? That's the issue. Yeah. Right here. Well, well, why don't you go deeper into that, George, since you brought it up? I mean, because you guys own the Professional um, Bowling Association, the PBA. How does that fit into the story? How does that create a flywheel or does it not? And what impact um, do, do the media rights have on the overall story? Well, look, I'll, let me give you the, the practical answer, and George can take it from there. Here's the reality. We're doing an in, PBA as an infomercial for bowling, and it's largely an infomercial for Bolero and AMF because the shows are shot in our centers with our branding. We, this year, will make about a million dollars on PBA. Not significant, but what is significant is that we were able to eliminate $10 million from our traditional media spend because of the basically thousand hours of with re-airs that PBA is on television. Okay. So uh, an $11 million swing, by the way, we paid $11 million for PBA kind of funny, right? So an $11 million pickup to EBITDA. Um, and, and we craft the message and the message is bowling is fun, hip, cool. We've done a lot of player development. You have characters now, not quite like the WWE, not to that level, but a whole lot better than it was when we bought it, right? We said, guys, you know, go to the gym. <laughs> right. They say? Go like, to the gym. <laughs> put down that pie, you know, right? I, I mean, see, you, I see a Bolero Performance Center in time. <laughs> in Boca instead of Orlando. Uh, is that, uh, is that, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're pushing us down to that one. Um, it's, what about, and, and maybe George is the right person for this since he's like really the media expert here. How does like shoulder content fit into this? Um, you talked about building personalities. We've seen what um, Drive to Survive has done for Formula One. How are you thinking about building content around it? Forget about the PBA media rights. Well, they're already doing that. And I think Tom should talk about that. I, I, I will say this, and I want to reemphasize Tom's point because it's so important. Trying to get you involved here, George. No, I appreciate it. <laughs> Look, I, I, Tom, Tom's a star here today. Um, but this whole notion of the PBA driving engagement in the flywheel, it does get back to that volume. Pl I mean, it's like Tom said, everything's a math problem in life. They figured out this, this beautiful business with 100% margin. So anything you can do to drive that engagement, massively, uh, massive opportunity. I think over the next three to five years, building out the characters, the shoulder programming, the monetization model around sponsorship, rights, advertising, all of that, building out the digital and social profile, all will be done. Uh, and that'll drive increment, real material incremental revenue, we believe. But I think in, over the short term, it's it's that engagement. But, Tom, you could talk about some of the shoulder programming you guys are already working on, which we think is really interesting. Sure, George. Well, look, we're working on a shiny floor game show. And everyone remembers Bowling for Dollars, even if they never saw it. 
a bowling for dollars should be on television, right? Or some variation of that. Who wants to be a millionaire with bowling, right? So we, we're working on that. Uh, no promises, but it, logically, I think it should happen. For example, holy moly out there about mini golf, which is a lot less interesting than bowling, uh, got picked up for a second season on ABC. So there is interest in these kind of niche sports. So that would be an, an amazing infomercial. If you think about a primetime game show about bowling, um, we're also working on documentaries about the PBA and, and other things. So I think there's an ecosystem around bowling that will be fulfilled from a media standpoint. So um, we have a question came in from Josh. Um, can you ask about how Professional Bowlist Bowling Association fits into the strategy, the media rights, the betting angle around that? Like basically, where do they fit? How do they fit relative to you? I think is sort of the question. Like where do the where do the Just lines converge, diverge, etc. Going deeper into kind of what you've been talking about specifically around the PBA. Well, I, I don't think there's much to elaborate on in addition to what we've said. I mean, we we have invested a lot in the content and the production quality is pretty high. Fox, is, who, who is our media partner on this, are very happy. They just renewed our deal. Uh, okay. you know, we've put a lot How long is that deal for? Yeah. Well, we, we agreed mutually to only extend it for a year. Okay. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, that I don't want to get into, but the partnership is, is very uh, hold on before, before you go on importantly, your yeah. decision or their decision. Um, no mutual, mutual. It, it was kind of like George has a smile on his face. So there's definitely something strategic here. Uh, look, the reason I, the reason I ask is obviously when it's your decision, short term can be very beneficial if you're growing your footprint and doing a lot of things that will make the footprint more attractive to media rights in a year. So it, to me, the short time frame seems intriguing. I'm just sort of confused why Fox would agree to a short time frame. That makes less sense to me. I don't want to get into the specifics. Our relationship okay. with Fox is really good. Um, they're really happy with the ratings and the, the production quality. And I think that Ultimately, this will end up being a much longer term thing. But, you know. Gotcha. What about, I mean, let's tie this back to sports betting, though, and sports betting on the PBA. Do you have relationships with DraftKings or FanDuel, maybe, um, that, you know, uh, are places your media rights could also wind up in a different, in addition to on linear TV or sort of OTT apps? Yep, we have uh, we have uh, relationships with uh, DraftKings and Genius and all these other guys. Fox Bet, right? So uh, you can bet on the PBA. Um, <laughs> yeah. We also have relationships with gaming apps. There's a skills bowling game. One of one of their highest performing games, believe it or not, is Bolero, right? <laughs> Spike at Bolero. So yeah, there's there's all this stuff going going on simultaneously. I will say for all of us who are close to it, that question from Josh about how the PBA, where does it fit? I, you know, if you take a big step back, the only place in the world where the play, watch, and engage for the entire life cycle of participants exists under one umbrella, right? So you can be like me, 
who goes a couple of times a year. You can be a league bowler who's you know a real amateur bowler who's going regularly and then all the way to the professional level. So you have the entire ecosystem of the sport under one umbrella. And then that monetization happens in different ways. It could be incremental bowling games. It could be sports betting across the entire spectrum. It could be acting as a house. It could be gamification, all of it. But if, if you take a giant step back, by having the league, you have the entire life cycle of the sport. It, it, it's, it's incredibly unique. And, and it, to us, it is a massive ingredient to the flywheel. Each one helps the other. And it's the only sport in the world where that exists today. Um, I guess maybe um, I think we're running out of time, but we sort of should talk a little bit about um, over the last few minutes, sort of the merger and, and the SPAC slash and the, with the pipe attached to it. Maybe like, you know, Alana's question sort of on this topic was, you know, really for George, I guess, but I also have a question tied to this too. Given the clear strength of this business, what's the rationale for the convertible preferred portion of the pipe versus all common? Who's going to be the holder of the convert? Uh, and then I've sort of got something that ties to this of like, given how exciting this business is, no offense to George, why is this company just not going an IPO the normal route, just given this, the, the way this story sort of sounds? I'll take the first part, uh, Tom. So just to remind everyone, so you had 255 million in the SPAC vehicle, 450 million in the pipe, 250 of which is common. And to remind everyone, the, the, the two lead investors there are Apollo and Soros. So you're talking two of the most sophisticated investors in the world buying in uh, to the valuation and to this business uh, long term. So we were super excited about all of that. On the convert, to your point, you know, given the uh, where we were on the minimum cash condition, we thought that was a nice add-on. Uh, Atiros, the current private equity holder, is a, a big participant in, in, in the convert. So for us, it just kind of came together pretty neat under a pretty neat package. So I'll let Tom address the last part of the question. Yeah, Tom, why did you just not go public? Like, what was the, this, you know, given the story? Other than the breakfast at IHOP, right? I, I understand he <laughs> bought you a $3, you bought him a $3 breakfast and the, the rest is history. <laughs> but, but I understand, George. I, I understand. Um, I think the reality like, was when I put too much of the blueberry syrup on the pancakes, I had a sugar high and he put the document in front of me to sign while I had a sugar high. It wouldn't so, be the first time. <laughs> uh, I wasn't in uh, complete command of my faculties at the time. No, look, the SPAC is just a mechanism for going public. Um, we could have done an IPO. We could have done a direct listing. Frankly, we could have done a leveraged recap and stayed private. Um, we don't need the capital to grow. Most of the proceeds are going to uh, uh, redeem some shares of our private equity partner, Ateros, who came in in 2017. I'm not selling any of my shares. I'm going to end up owning more than 35% of the common. By the way, I've never sold a share in 24 and a half years and put the proceeds in my pocket. I've Do you want to know who that reminds me of? Oh. George. When George was at WWE, he never sold any shares until after that domestic rights deal. Right? Yeah, I think it was 10 or 11 years. Yeah, you compounded for a long time. I had a financial advisor every year telling me I needed to... Um, uh, diversify. And I said, yeah, thanks for the advice. This is why I don't pay anybody. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, look, and it, patience paid off. Here, there, look, there's an aberration right now. We know SPACs are out of favor. Okay, if we, if we, so the enterprise value right now is about two point six billion dollars. If we did an IPO, we'd probably get a value of four billion dollars. Okay, so I think that uh, right now there's a, a really unique opportunity for people who want to buy in. It's never going to be this cheap again. It's ridiculously cheap. We couldn't buy a company of lesser quality in leisure and hospitality for the multiple that we're going out at. I'm not a seller. Uh, Ateros is selling some of their position, not the majority, some of their position. And it makes sense for them. They're approaching five years. They're a private equity firm. They're not a hold forever sort of founder like I am. But uh, this company's going out really cheap, super cheap. We raised guidance, by the way. Our guidance for calendar 22, uh, when initially it was 275 million of EBITDA, we raised our guidance to $285 million, right? So all of the trends in our business are accelerating in a very positive way. Um, and it it's super cheap. Great. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything we've got. That was a fascinating story. Um, I don't think anyone's really heard the sports betting opportunity um, described like it is for you guys. So um, that was especially compelling. Rich, do you have anything to add? No, I just wanted to thank George and Tom for making time for us. I know it's early in your sort of launch, and we just appreciate you choosing us to be part of this. And um, we'll make, uh, you know, we'll be watching and looking for you to make progress as you go. Thanks, guys. Thanks. 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 Take care. Bye-bye.